This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. When I was a teenager, the technology landscape changed forever. Seemingly overnight, mobile phones the size of bricks were replaced with sleek iPhones with touchscreens. The internet was now in the palm of your hand and any question would get the answer, there's an app for that. Life would never be the same again. I've been thinking about this a lot in relation to AI. It's gone from being the reserve of high-tech companies to freely available on websites like ChatGPT and Dali Art Generator. But beyond making deep fakes of the Pope wearing a puffer jacket, is AI having its own iPhone moment? Will it soon be part of the reliable fabric of society? And if so, what will life be like under our new AI masters? With me to discuss is Dr. Kate Devlin, Reader in Artificial Intelligence and Society in the Department of Digital Humanities, King's College London. Kate, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me here. Oh, I'm so excited. So Kate, I am a recovering academic and now a podcaster. How long do I have before AI replaces me? (laughs) Oh, I never want to do predictions because you're always going to look terrible if you get the predictions wrong. So I refuse to do short-term predictions. I'm only going to do long-term ones that I'm not around to see come true or not. Uh, uh, But, you know, it could be a year or two. (laughs) No, I don't know. I genuinely, we are headed in a direction where there's going to be a lot of automation of jobs. It just really depends on what type of job and how well that technology develops. I think it's just fascinating. I have a pal told me a story about a university lecturer that they know who uh, knows that their students write their essays with AI, but also they're underpaid. So they also in turn use AI to help compile the feedback. And I was just wondering, you know, it just kind of led me to a bit of a thought experiment. I kind of want to write a J.G. Ballard novel basically on like what happens when we all end up writing things or using AI and uh, no one admits to it. Where do we go? (laughs) I think we're pretty much there. That's very interesting about it being used at universities because the the sort of knee-jerk reaction is to think, well, of course we're not going to let students use this to write their essays. Really, it's going to be completely unavoidable. This stuff is going to be built into all of the technology we use, including things like word processors, the same way that things like grammar checks are built in or spelling checks are built built in. So I think we have to not be afraid of that from that aspect. And we have to be looking for other skills to test and assess students on. If we're setting people essays and saying, tell us exactly what you know, and that can be done by an AI, then we're not asking the right questions to assess students. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. But also podcasting, which is like the second thing that I've got into. Now AI can generate people's voices. 
I mean, it can, but at the same time, it's a bit like saying, well, AI can write a novel. It will churn out something vaguely resembling a novel, but it's not going to be very good. I think we really like that human touch and we're really still very good at producing something that others want to hear that an AI just can't do yet. So before we get on to, you know, some of the fears and and things that AI can do, I kind of questioned in the beginning there whether AI is having an iPhone moment, but are we kind of already reliant on AI, but we just don't know it? AI is embedded in so much of what we use every day and we just don't realize it. If you're carrying around a smartphone, you're carrying around AI in your pocket. And anything from using maps to generate routes, to check on addresses, anything from using streaming services that will predict what you might want to watch next or music that you want to listen to, it's all being done in the background by machine learning. So it's already here. I just love that because I think so many people will have heard recent stories about AI and been quite freaked out, you know, kind of worried about it. AI is at its heart a tool. So why are we so scared of it right now? The big jump forward has been the release of ChatGPT and that happened back in November of last year. And it wasn't just that this technology now existed. It was that it existed and was available publicly and at scale. So within a week of ChatGPT launching, it had a million users. It was that quick. So immediately everyone was captivated by the ability of this AI piece of software to generate text that sounded very convincing and plausible. And of course, that everyone wanted to try it out. Everyone wanted to have a go with this. And then there were image generators where you could type in a description and it would create a picture for you. So it's the fact that there's now completely easily accessible and very visible that makes people think it's something very new. A couple of months ago, we were all making fun little pictures of, I don't know, Tom Cruise movies in the style of Rembrandt. And now we're all terrified. Why has it changed so quickly? I think there's been a lot of attention suddenly pointed, a lot of spotlight pointed on the capabilities of this AI. And ChatGPT was a real leap forward in terms of what it could do. So it went from, we went from having chatbots that sounded fairly okay, but they fell down quite quickly if you tried to interact, to having something that was much more advanced and able to provide context for its answers as well. So there was that element of a step forward, but the visibility it got and the coverage it got and the amount of interaction that people were able to do with it really propelled it into the spotlight. It's that, isn't it? It went from being something that was like a bit of a joke, like it was like, you know, quite schlocky, like the sentences wouldn't make sense. And a little bit like, I don't know uh, whether you ever remember using like Google Translate for like going abroad or whatever. And like the sentences just never made sense. It went from going from something like that to being something that actually could write really convincing sentences, right? I think it's that, isn't it, that freaked people out so much? It is. It's become human-like. So it's not capable of the same things as us. It's not thinking for itself, but it's much more human-like. And that to us is very convincing and compelling. And because we're social creatures, we really enjoy that social interaction as well. So we buy into it. We're quite happy to go along uh, with these conversations that sound very, very convincing. But chatbots have been around since the 1960s. They weren't AI driven then, but people were still engaged then, even when they weren't and didn't have complex AI behind them. So it's this act of conversation and this act of interaction that actually gives us the the impetus uh, to, to really get involved and get engaged. I really think there's also a bit of an age old question here about like, what does it mean to be human? In the 19th century, everyone was scared of automatons because of their human likeness. 
Are we scared of AI because it mimics being human? The stories we tell about AI and technology go back centuries, right the way back. We have stories about robots and things like that from, from Greek myths. So down the years, down the centuries, we have these science fiction tales and they have very, very similar themes the whole way through. And they tend to be fear and a worry of dystopia. They worry that we're going to lose control. So when it comes to something like an AI can replace me, those are stories we've been telling for generations. And of course, we're concerned. What if the AI takes away the thing that makes me me? What if it takes away my work, my skills? What if it takes away my friendships? So yeah, there's there's this sense of threat and a, and a worry about loss of agency. And we respond to that very, very viscerally, probably on, a, on quite a, a subconscious level almost. So on control, Jeffrey Hinton, who was dubbed the godfather of AI, left Google recently over fears that AI shouldn't be scaled up until companies know how to control it. How founded are these fears? Oh, that's a tricky one. You could have the AI community arguing all day about <laughs> who's who's right and who's wrong over this. Uh, so when I, I, I've seen a lot of the coverage lately that compares Hinton to Oppenheimer, and you've got, I keep thinking of that meme, you know, about about me sowing and then me reaping, mm -hmm, kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. you knew what you were doing when you were creating this stuff. Why are you suddenly surprised and worried about the outcome of it? Because people have been talking about the possible threats for, for ages now. So to come along at this point and say, actually, maybe we should, we should halt this strikes me as a little bit late. The threats are not, in my own opinion, the threats are not huge and existential yet. I think there's a lot of fear and a lot of hype in the media and it's not all down to it being a threat. Some of it is a down to about who gets to control, who gets the power in this in this dynamic, who gets to be the company that leads the way. So behind these fears of an artificial intelligence taking over is the much more mundane who gets to profit from it. So I think we have to take these corporate scaremongering with a pinch of salt. It's so interesting because it's about which companies benefit and which profit, but also about like which countries, which nations, right? Who's exactly. Gonna, who's going to be the most dominant in that kind of like global geopolitical power play? Right. And that is a big concern. So we know that Silicon Valley is leading in this space in terms of generative AI. So we have companies like OpenAI who've really pushed the boundaries and other companies like Google, like Meta are also developing their own versions. And then we know that China has really good AI, but we don't quite know what that AI is because it's very opaque. Uh, we're not sure how development is going there. And then we've got the UK who would really like to be leaders in this, but lack the vast, vast, vast resources that and the money that the big tech companies have. So missing from all of this, because Europe is also in on the act, there's lots going on there as well. And they're actually quite you know, forward in, in thinking about regulation. But then there's this, this massive swathe of people, the global south is being excluded from this development. And in fact, being exploited almost because there are companies going in there and taking harvesting data, taking resources to create the hardware, and then selling it back to these countries. So it is definitely not a level playing field.
I'm really interested in this idea of material conditions. So, you know, what is it kind of like what generates like fear around things like AI? And I'm also a massive sci-fi nerd. So, of course, that's been inflected by that. And I don't know if you've ever read any Octavia Butler, but um, in one of her novels from the Parable of the Sower series, there is this like really stark contrast between the lives that these middle class, formerly middle class people are living and the technological capabilities of their world, which are vast, which are huge, but they're like real term conditions are crumbling. And I just also kind of thinking about what you were saying earlier, I'm kind of wondering whether a lot of the worries that we see around AI, I think it's no surprise that when chat GPT was launched or became more popular earlier this year, it was when we saw an unprecedented fear around people being able to heat their homes, being able to afford food. And I just wondered whether those kind of like things that are going on in society, political, I guess, big P politics and small P politics that are going on are affecting how we see the future potentials of these technologies. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely onto something there. When we're living in a, in a current climate where there's lots of threats to us from other angles, there's a cost of living crisis, there's environmental threat. Is it any wonder that we start panicking about the other things too, including technological advances? And when everything seems rather hopeless a lot of the time, then of course we're going to be looking at all those negatives along the way. So yes, I think there's definitely, that is a factor. I also wanted to pick you up on something that you kind of mentioned before, which is about AI replacing our friends. Because <laughs> I think that's <laughs> such a, an interesting, that's such an interesting angle in addition to this conversation around AI. I think often we talk about jobs and redundancies, which, you know, we can't minimalize the fears that are around those, particularly around uh, certain industries. I know that a lot of journalists are really worried, copywriters, um, but also, you know, automation's been going on for a very long time. You just have to look at a supermarket to see that now there's only like a few people on the tills, if ever, actually. And like, really, it's all about automated self-checkouts. When you think about what makes us human, intimacy and relationships are really important. Will AI be able to take that over too? There is definitely scope for that. So I spent the past few years researching uh, the world of intimacy and technology, sex tech, sex robots, and now these chatbots that, that play a role of a virtual partner. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I think there is always this fear, again, back to the idea of replacement. That is the ultimate replacement, isn't it? When you've got, you've got a machine that replaces or a piece of software that replaces your very deepest connections. Uh, but yes, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are interacting with things like AI chatbots, like Replica, millions of users who will use that as a kind of a, a partner experience, a relationship substitute almost and now these are heavily gendered it tends to be software that is created for straight men so it tends to be this girlfriend experience that's being offered in one way I think well you know there's what what is the harm in that like evidenced harm in that because there's not really evidence harm in that why who are we to say that the best relationship has to be between two humans why, why can't a man fall in love with his machine but at the same time we don't quite know we don't know if it's something that they are turning to out of desperation if it's something that they it might not be healthy because they might become too involved it might be cause some kind of, of mental Ill health so there are huge amounts of questions emerging around that and then there's the more sort of 
boring questions in many ways, but actually they really need addressed. Like, where's your data going? When you're talking to these things, when you're confiding your deepest, darkest secrets and all of your fantasies, who actually has hold of your data? Yeah, I think that's the thing that makes it feel so much more sinister because you just never really know. You know, all the people as well, like, I mean, I've definitely done it and I'm sure I'm going to live to regret it. But, you know, like sign up for this thing and you'll get like a, a free sticker pack or something. <laughs> Everyone does it. Everyone just clicks the box saying they've read the terms and conditions. No one reads the terms and conditions. Yeah. At least I don't. And, you know, yeah. and, and I should know better. But who, who's got the time for that? You know, you just want to access the stuff. If you're not reading the terms and conditions, I don't know what hope there is for the rest of us. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> so I think we've talked quite a lot about the idea that it's already everywhere anyway, but there is this kind of like ongoing fear around, around AI. And I just wanted to ask, because I was kind of thinking about Luddites <laughs> in relationship to this. I'm formerly a historian and I was like, what would the Luddites do? And I was just, I mean, that's not a question that I ask often, right? But I just thought if anyone can answer it, maybe it's you. Is, <laughs> there, is there any way to kind of resist the oncoming wave that is that is AI that's more freely available? Because it doesn't seem to me, like not engaging is going to do much, right? There's already millions of users of chat GPT and other, other AI. So what can the um, modern day Luddite do? <laughs> the Luddites are a really interesting example because, of course, they weren't just protesting against the technology. They were protesting about job loss. Uh, protesting about the social conditions that would change because of the technology. I think people often forget that. They think they just wanted to smash up the machines for fun. But yeah, you're right. I mean, what can we do? Well, we, we can resist to, to a point. We, can, we want to bring a lot of this technology into our lives because it adds value to our lives. We enjoy it. We find it useful. It can have positive benefits. But we need to make sure that it's done in a responsible way and that would require perhaps some kind of oversight or regulation and and there's there's no general consensus on how that should be done but also i think we can we can look at exactly what we use and what we choose to reject uh, we can look at the the companies that are what they're doing with this and we can push back and there's been lots of online activism that actually has results when people push back against perhaps uh, programs of research or development that they find unethical. And we've seen that happen with companies like Google, where workers and people using the products have said, we don't want this, and Google have responded. So there's definitely things we can do to voice concern. You just reminded me then of obviously another reason why people are so mistrustful of the regulations around AI and it's because our current government seems like it can't even tie its shoelaces, right? I mean, there is that, but there's some, there's very differing views on how this should be regulated. There's no global jurisdiction on it for starters, but you know, different nations have different approaches. There is not yet any AI regulation in practice. So the closest we've got so far is the European Union who've introduced their AI Act. It's still going through the lawmaking processes and they've taken a very risk-based approach. So they're saying, here is some technology and you must not use it. Things like autonomous weapons that can make kill decisions that, you know, they're saying there's no, there's no way that should be allowed. And then they have a group of technologies where they say, this could be useful, but it also poses a threat. So perhaps facial recognition, which could be used 
perhaps to find a, a lost child, say, that's my generous uh, interpretation. But as also we know, facial recognition is very biased. Um, it's led to many cases uh, where people have been wrongly accused of things or misidentified. It, it's, it's definitely uh, racially discriminates. Uh, so it's saying perhaps use those, but use those under, uh, under advice. Use them you know, very carefully. And then it has everything else. The UK, by contrast, have said, well, we don't want to stifle innovation, so we're going to take a, a pro-innovation approach and we will regulate sector by sector depending on what's needed. So they've released a white paper earlier this year to do that. And then the US had initially said, oh, we're pro-industry. What can we do to steer this? You know, it's, it's, all, it's all very federated across agencies as well, but it's it's um, very much with, uh, with industry in mind. And of course, that's now coming back to bite them a bit, which is why we've had these recent Senate hearings where we've had leaders of big tech companies going in to talk to, to the Congress to, to say, oh, this, this is what we think should happen in the future. God, in a way, it just feels like an unfolding psychodrama, doesn't it? Where we've, we've all got a stake <laughs> in it because society might burn otherwise. But at the same time, it all just feels, yeah, it all just feels very kind of like there's like no real control over it in a way. Maybe it's back to that question of control again, or like our agency over it feels quite limited. I think because it's technology that is very hyped anyway, and because there are, is a lot of bureaucracy to go through to get that governance into place, and we don't quite know the best way of doing it, it can seem really overwhelming. It doesn't necessarily have to be. And there are lots of really good programs out there and projects out there that are seeking to use this responsibly. I'm involved in one. Uh, I'm involved in a, in a multi-university program called the Trustworthy Autonomous Systems Hub, where we look at how to deploy this stuff responsibly. How do we determine whether a robot or an AI is built according to trusted standards, but also if the people who are using it and who are affected by it find it trustworthy as well? Kate, I found you just like a beacon of hope <laughs> in this debate that's like well not debate you know in this kind of structural societal change that seems quite scary at times so I just I just wanted to ask you one final question which is if you could give one piece of advice to someone who was really worried about AI I'm not going to name any names it's not me it might be me <laughs> what would you say I would say question everything don't take it at face value don't don't presume that the headlines tell the full story i think one of the things we need going forward is really good ai literacy where we understand that the potentials of this and the ramifications so don't be worrying about this super intelligence or agi or the singularity or anything like that those are not the pressing problems right now there's a lot of injustice going on in ai in terms of who has access to it who is impacted by it and what we see every day you know how do we know if something is genuine or not so question things that's my advice what a line of hope to end on kate thank you so much for joining me in the bunker thank you listeners if you've enjoyed this episode please support the bunker on patreon for as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing you are supporting independent media. I'm Dr Kasia Tomasiewicz. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Dr Kasia Tomasiewicz. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. 
with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.